On today's edition of Urban Puritano, we scratch the surface on biblical interpretation according to Calvinism. What are the contours of a Reformed reading of Holy Scripture? Will these apply to only the learned, or to the unlearned as well? What difference does it make? Stay tuned. All Christians are urban Christians. Whether you live in Graceville, Florida, or Chicago, Illinois, the believer is on a pilgrim's journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. As we endeavor to live unto God in this world, our faith looks for the city which is to come, whose architect and builder is the living God. You are not alone on your journey. As you travel the narrow way, know that a great cloud of witnesses went before you. Many travel alongside you, and while the Lord tarries, many will follow the same path after you. But until the heavenly city is brought to us, or we to it, one such pilgrim is your fellow traveler. He is Urban Puritano. Calvinism approaches Holy Scripture as the absolute word of the absolute God. The scriptures are the word of truth from the God of truth. As Cornelius Van Til stated, quote, Nowhere but in scripture does an absolute God speak. Close quote. This absolute confidence in the unique message and character of God's word is inseparable from our absolute confidence in the character of the God of truth himself. See Psalm 138 verse 2. Concerning its uniqueness and its message, Van Til continues, quote, Nowhere but in Scripture is redemption by pure grace alone. Nowhere but in Scripture is there a program of the destruction of all sin and evil. Nowhere but in Scripture is there a picture of absolute victory at last. Close quote. What, then, is the correct path for us to rightly interpret the vast and sweeping content of the Holy Scripture? First, we must define what we mean by interpretation. Second, we must answer why interpretation is even necessary. Third, we will suggest a basic roadmap, as it were, for interpreting the Scriptures for yourself. First, what is interpretation. Interpretation is the opening up, the explanation of the words and statements of Scripture in order to draw out its single, full, and natural meaning. Such interpretation involves, negatively, removing differences and distance between the original authors and readers today, and positively, providing a firm hermeneutical foundation and appropriate exegetical tools to build a solid framework for the inevitable construction of a coherent theology. For every interpretation and meaning at arrived at, there must be a justifiable rationale for it. Hermeneutics, the science of interpreting scripture, is not meant to be daunting. Exegesis, the art of drawing out the meaning from scripture, is not meant to be intimidating. Indeed, the average person can confirm for themselves, by surveying 
and reading the scriptures that it is generally clear in its message from cover to cover. Are there some portions of scripture that are more difficult to understand than others? Yes. Does this justify the lazy and erroneous conclusion that the Bible says whatever the interpreter wants it to say? No. There is, after all, such a thing as a correct mental grasp of meaning on the one hand, and an incorrect mental grasp of meaning on the other hand. To apprehend Scripture's correct meaning is to understand. To not apprehend the Scripture's correct meaning is to misunderstand. The former leads to a knowledge of the truth. The latter does not. When it comes to meaning, then, Scripture is not schizophrenic, neither in whole nor in part. Why is interpretation even necessary? We, the interpreters of Scripture, are indeed spiritually schizophrenic. We hear and obey the conflicting voices of our own imaginations, traditions, cultures, educations, morals, customs, tastes, loyalties, preferences, aversions, and affections, or those of other people. These many voices bid us to go down different paths of interpretation. Remember that the scriptures are not an unintelligible cacophony, but a symphonic communication, apart from the foundational recognition that the scriptures are divinely designed revelation and as such are rationally intelligible. The paths of interpretation are as inconsistent as they are uncertain. Indeed, apart from this foundational recognition, is not despair in the interpretive process warranted? Yet being a Christian does not in and of itself safeguard the interpreter from error. Simply being a Christian and recognizing the Scripture's divine character is no guarantee of interpretive success. Christians didn't just fall out from heaven as impartial, objective angels with a correct conception of scriptural revelation. Who among us is not born into unique, historical, and cultural milieus? We also naturally rely on our own intellectual, emotional, moral, educational, traditional, historical, and spiritual resources to guide us in our interpretive task. Humility acknowledges that although our spirits are willing to be good interpreters, our flesh is weak. Parallel to this situation is the recognition that even the Bible itself did not descend from on high to each and every one of us in our own language, cultural patterns, or time period in history. Although the hermeneutic distance is not to be exaggerated to render our interpretive task hopeless, it must not be minimized. The life and times of the biblical writers and their accounts are different than our own. And even if we lived in biblical times and places, there would still exist difficulties at interpreting God's word. Difficulties, not impossibilities. The ground of the interpreter's hope is that Scripture is a communication from God. Interpretive despair, therefore, is unwarranted. Thankfully, we can also draw comfort in Peter's declaration 
that some things in Paul's writings are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do other scriptures. 2 Peter 3.16 These obstacles to interpretation, therefore, highlight the necessity for interpretation. Obstacles exist both within us and outside of us. Within us, due to a myriad of limitations exacerbated by sin. Outside of us, due to the distance of time, history, culture, and the difference between language and thought patterns between the scriptures and ourselves. Going forward, I would like to commend a thoroughly Calvinistic, indeed a thoroughly Reformed approach to biblical interpretation that can be built upon for personal use. An approach that takes seriously the variety of terrain the biblical landscape itself displays in all its diversity of stylistic traits and its rich, abstract theological features. My hope is that this Reformed approach to biblical interpretation can begin to yield God-glorifying results along the lines of both a panoramic, Christward and Christ-centered view of God's redemptive, overarching story and message for man, and a symphonic, not schizophrenic, spiritual reading and hearing of God's redemptive composition called Sacred Scripture. Revelation 3.22 says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says. As we begin our journey, let us keep ever-present that a truly efficacious and spiritual understanding of God's Word never precludes that it can be submitted to the categories of logical analysis and scrutiny. The Bible won't wither away at our investigations. In fact, God invites, welcomes, and commends honest investigation and interpretation. Acts 17.11 What is the posture of Calvinism concerning reading and interpreting Scripture? The Bible is an extraordinarily normal, worldly book. Its familiarity and similarity to other world literature is undeniable. At the same time, it is an extraordinarily unique and supernatural book. Despite being written by over 40 authors over a 1,500-year period, covering historical events in methodical, logical progression from diverse cultural viewpoints, the scriptures consistently tells us about God and ourselves. Cornelius Van Til correctly observed that for the faithful reader, quote, sacred history becomes terrible and beautiful. It grips one in the inmost depths of his existence. There is no epic so sweeping, no drama so dramatic as the story of sacred history, close quote. The Bible is also an otherworldly revelation. Its transcendent character and content is undeniable as well. Sacred Scripture reveals the God of whom it speaks, and His words' universal applicability to man's existence by revealing His true nature and plight. Throughout its diverse pages, its unity in message is sufficiently perceived, resulting in either humble embrace or judgmental rejection. The Bible reads the reader, and demands a response. 
This is the revelation that will not be content merely being one among many. It unravels the reader while the reader wrestles and attempts to unravel it. Terrible and beautiful indeed. Terrible in the sense of knowing the weightiness of the subject matter. The scriptures deal with no light matters. What or who is the God of whom it speaks? What or who is man to whom it speaks? How can an utterly just and holy God commune with utterly sinful and rebellious people? Trembling is the appropriate response. Beautiful in the sense of the comfort proffered in his word, and which details God's gracious intention of ultimately displaying his refulgent radiance in his redemptive work and communing with his people. This is love in its ultimate possible expression. Not our love towards God, but the other way around. Omnipotent, immeasurable, undeserving love towards us made our salvation both possible and actual. In his word, we find the only comfort in life and death. Symmetry, vibrancy, every brushstroke, all the pieces of the puzzle, all the threads of the tapestry, every note in the musical score, and every square inch of creation, providence, and redemption redound to his glory and graciously to our good. This, my friends, is nothing less than the posture of Calvinism. Where can the honest interpreter begin? No doubt all interpreters begin somewhere. The following underlying general hermeneutical assumptions are a good place to start. This is just scratching the surface. Remember, reading the scriptures is a lifelong journey. These underlying general hermeneutical assumptions are as interlocking links in a chain. They are, first, the verbal and plenary inspiration of Scripture. Second, the perspicuity or clarity of Scripture. Three, the twin principles of the analogy of Scripture and the analogy of faith. And four, the unity and diversity of Scripture. Let's expand on these a little bit. One, the verbal and plenary inspiration of Scripture. The verbal and plenary inspiration of Scripture refers to the Scriptures being the product of God causing the various biblical authors to write down everything exactly as He intended. This includes not only the big ideas or major portions of Scripture, this divine causation extends to the whole, inclusive of every word itself. Furthermore, this divine inspiration was neither mechanical nor was it in any way subversive of human authorship whatsoever. Whatever human effort was involved in the pre-writing process, and whatever style the authors employed in the writing process itself, God ensured by this divine inspiration that his thoughts and the writer's thoughts interpenetrated such that a bona fide communication from God to his people was recorded by various authors exactly as he intended. This presupposition of the verbal and plenary inspiration of Scripture, like all the other underlying hermeneutical assumptions, is not simply postulated by theological imposition. It emerges quite naturally from passages such as 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Peter 1.19-21, and 1 Corinthians 2.7-13. 
among other biblical texts throughout Scripture. For further study, Louis Gossan's Theopneustia and B.B. Warfield's Inspiration and Authority of the Bible are recommended. Before moving on, I would be remiss in my Reformed duty if I failed to point out that this classical evangelical view of the verbal and plenary inspiration of Scripture is actually a major illustration and example of the Calvinistic understanding of concurrence between the will of God and the will of man. If divine causation results in man willfully writing down exactly what God intends, that is, the writing of Scripture, is there any other area in which divine causation results in man willing something other than what God precisely intends? Calvinists, mischievously or not, answer yes. Let the careless reader beware that if he or she comes to the biblical text presupposing by default the concept of libertarian free will, the principle of alternative possibilities, especially for genuine love to exist, or the pop-Arminian notion that God is a gentleman who must always respect autonomous human choice in order to be able to hold us responsible for our actions, sooner rather than later, the reader will collide with texts that are incompatible with such deeply erroneous notions. Neither the biblical authors, the biblical text, much less the biblical God conform to the false assumptions bound up with libertarian free will. 2. The Perspicuity or Clarity of Scripture The perspicuity of Scripture refers to the basic quality of clarity the Scriptures exhibit as a whole, but especially in regards to the question, what must I do to be saved? The Westminster Confession of Faith is most excellent in this regard. Chapter 1, Section 7 of the Westminster Confession of Faith states, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet, those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other, that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. The question is, by what means? As R.C. Sproul aptly put it, quote, Biblical Christianity is not an esoteric religion, close quote. The means of biblical interpretation do not involve mysterious practices yielding mysterious meanings. There is no meaning in Scripture other than what the due use of the ordinary means will yield. Therefore, our fundamental concern is to remain so close to the text that only what is expressly or explicitly written in Scripture, or what by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, is privileged. The perspicuity of Scripture recognizes that some portions or texts of Scripture may not easily yield their meaning and may be difficult to understand. As mentioned earlier, the Apostle Peter said as much concerning some of the Apostle Paul's writings that are among portions of Scripture. But the solution to a charley horse between the ears is, as Gordon Clark used to say, a rational massage. The perspicuity of Scripture, thus, does not demand that the meaning of Scripture, quote, always lie on the surface, unquote. 
There is, after all, the legitimacy, if not the inevitability and indispensability of logical implications in communication that the scriptures themselves are not exempt from. What believer would argue against God's word having logical depth? Interpretations must always have a rational rationale. The whole enterprise of biblical hermeneutics and exegesis is essentially a rational method applied to a rational revelation. Together, they are an artful science seeking to rationally and judiciously arrive at the correct meaning of the biblical text. Its foundations, principles, and methods are thoroughly rational and coherent within themselves and with Scripture. But the question arises, who may discuss these things? Gordon Clark correctly notes, quote, The Bible has a message intended to be understood. End of quote. By whom? By a select group of elite academicians, scholars, gurus, or clerics? By only a special class of people who alone are tasked with its interpretation and who are to dole out its meaning to the masses? Gordon Clark, in standard Protestant form, matter-of-factly states the Reformation's dangerous idea, quote, The Bible was addressed to the populace at large, the working men and slaves, as well as to kings and those in authority, close quote. This does not preclude other individuals, the academy, or even the community of faith from being of help to a person struggling with the correct interpretation of a biblical text. The perspicuity of Scripture simply recognizes that correct interpretation is within everyone's reach and not dependent on a special class of official interpreters. Very pointedly, Clark drives home the point, quote, If you and I are so stupid as not to be able to understand the Bible, but need priests, bishops, and popes to tell us what it means, are we not also too stupid to understand what they say? End of quote. Thankfully, and by grace alone, the scripture's content and overarching storyline, composed of myriad stories, examples, precepts, exhortations, admonitions, and promises concerning God's redemptive purpose and man's salvation, is sufficiently clear and evident. Both scholar and layman can by the same means arrive at the answer to how a holy and just God can bless rebellious, sinful mankind with salvation, as it was before for shepherds, warriors, royalty, and fishermen, as it continued to be for monks, maidens, lawyers, and tinkers, so the Bible's message continues to be so now, sufficiently clear and evident to all who would apply God's due use of ordinary means. 3. The Twin Principles of the Analogy of Scripture and the Analogy of Faith In consonance with all the other hermeneutical assumptions is the two-pronged principle or dual presuppositions, the analogy of Scripture and the analogy of faith. These principles were alluded to in considering the perspicuity of Scripture and refer to the uniform teaching of Scripture, the analogy of faith, and it does so by means of Scripture itself, the analogy of Scripture. In other words, Scripture interprets Scripture inevitably leads to a clear, uniform teaching and theology from Scripture as a whole. 
The analogy of Scripture leads to the analogy of faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 1, Section 9 states, The infallible rule of Scripture is Scripture itself. And therefore, when a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold, but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. This is truly a workman's hermeneutic. The analogy of Scripture impels us to do the hard work of searching the Scriptures, while the analogy of faith safeguards the deposit of sound doctrine. Let's take a look at that word searched. The interpreter's hermeneutical responsibility, whenever or wherever there are problems resulting from unclear texts, is to seek the resolution to such difficulties in other clearer portions of Scripture. Sometimes the solution will be relatively simple. At other times, the solution will be quite complex. It may involve extended arguments, inferences, and deductions. In all of these scenarios, the resulting uniformity of scriptural meaning only highlights all the more that the Bible is first and foremost not merely the words of men, but the Word of God. Sadly, certain theologians and teachers who should know better promote a concept of paradox as a legitimate hermeneutical principle. They may say that since God is infinite, there is infinite meaning in the words of Scripture. Furthermore, because God is infinite, some even maintain that there are meanings and doctrines that are irreconcilable with each other in Scripture. Does this not militate against the validity of the analogy of Scripture and the analogy of faith? This sort of paradox, some maintain, is simply something we have to live with and relish in due to being finite creatures. This is not the case at all. As a matter of fact, it is infinitely better to not speak of Scripture's meaning as infinite, even if we attempt to base that on God's infinity. It is simply erroneous. The true and full sense of any Scripture is not manifold, but one. The fuller, deeper sense of Scripture entertains no contradictions or unresolvable paradoxes that have to be maintained to do supposed justice to both sides of conflicting texts or doctrines. Theologians and teachers should be the first to search and harmonize questions about the true and full meaning of Scripture passages and doctrines. It is inevitable that questions arise concerning the meaning of some scriptural text or other. However, the analogy of Scripture cries out to us to move beyond one's subjective paradox and not rest until we do the hard work of searching the Scriptures to arrive in more objective territory. Paradox, which is person-relative, should not be elevated to the position of a hermeneutical principle. After all, what is paradoxical to one person may not be paradoxical to another. Let the interpreter of Scripture never forget that portions of the Bible are not always clear in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Interpreters should never ascribe their intellectual limitations onto others. That would be arrogance, not piety. Paradox in hermeneutics can only lead to paradox in exegesis. Furthermore, as we do compare Scripture with Scripture, the analogy of Scripture, 
biblical evidence is accumulated, implications are validly drawn, possible interpretations are eliminated, controlled beliefs are modified and subjugated to the truth of God's word. Because scripture cannot be broken, John 10.35, what emerges as texts supplement texts in a holistic, systematic fashion is a uniformity of teaching, the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith cries out to us to reach for the baton of well-established doctrine and continue running the race. Consider the following example. Scripture teaches that God is one and indivisible. Scripture also teaches that in the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. If interpreters had stopped comparing Scripture with Scripture and simply held that God was one with three modes of existence, where would biblical Trinitarianism be? No, method always matters. They didn't merely conclude, this is paradoxical. The scriptures underdetermine whether God is one in one sense and three in a different sense. Because of the infinity of God, let us hold to God as one and God as three in the same sense in tension. Brothers, Athanasius must always prevail over Arius. 4. The Unity and Diversity of Scripture the Bible is not, despite what unbelievers say, a mishmash of contradictory fables. Definite unity is rightly perceptible throughout its diverse pages. There is a discernible cohesion in the midst of the diverse texts within Scripture. In fact, what emerges for the responsible reader as he applies a due use of the ordinary means to the Bible is what the Westminster Confession says is the consent of all the parts. There are two ways we can apprehend the unity and diversity of Scripture. One way is through the history of redemption. The other way is through systematic theology. The former, also known as biblical theology, focuses on the chronological unfolding of God's revelation to his people in history. The latter focuses on the logical ordering of revelation into a system of doctrines. These work together as bifocal lenses, allowing the interpreter to appreciate both the redemptive historical forest and the systematic theological trees, neither at the expense of the other. This present episode can only scratch the surface concerning the organic unity found within the diversity of God's Word. Consider the history of redemption. Scripture wonderfully and dramatically displays its organic and progressive unfolding much like the planted bulb emerges from the ground as a growing bud and in the fullness of time blossoms into a beautiful tulip. The tulip can no more disparage the bulb than systematic theology can disparage biblical theology, or vice versa. To use another figurative illustration, quote, all the books of the Bible have their binding center in Jesus Christ. They all relate to the work of redemption and the founding of God's kingdom on earth. Unquote. Thus, just as the pages of your Bible make contact with and are held together at the spine with either adhesive or by being sewn, so Christ centered meaning permeates and holds together the Christ word meanings 
throughout the pages of God's Word, no matter where you turn. According to our Lord and Savior Himself, the Old Testament set the stage, book by book, epoch by epoch, covenant by covenant, and promise by promise, to point forward in some way, shape, or form to the Savior's glorious work of redemption for His people. Please refer to Luke 24, verses 25 through 27, verses 44 through 47, Acts 3.18, also verses 21 and 24, Acts 17, 2 to 3, Acts 26, 22 and 23, 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Those are just to start. The New Testament is nothing if not the fulfillment and climactic inauguration of God's promised redemptive purpose in Christ. The fully orbed significance of Christ's person and work, what he accomplished at Calvary, is what we find studied, explained, and worshipped throughout the New Testament. The Old Testament was preparatory for the finality of the New Testament. The multifaceted and systematic implications of our Lord's person and work reach out backwards and forwards. The glory of God in Christ is the new song belonging to the people of God because we have been reconciled to God and each other by God's grace. Scripture represents, and the New Testament specifically details, the defeat of evil in all its forms by Christ, in Christ, and through Christ. This is the warp and woof of Calvinistic biblical interpretation. Burkhoff, for example, observed, quote, Many of the Old Testament types pointed ultimately to the New Testament realities. Many prophecies found their final fulfillment in Jesus Christ, no matter how many of the Psalms give utterance to the joy and sorrow, not merely of the poets, but of the people of God as a whole, and in some cases of the suffering and triumphant Messiah. These considerations lead us to what may be called the deeper sense of Scripture, but they do so by comparing Scripture with Scripture. Biblical evidence is accumulated and synthesized. Implications are validly drawn out. Texts supplement texts. Uniformity in teaching is reached at precisely because there is a proper rational method of biblical interpretation. This whole lifelong process is also the warp and woof that delivers to us the fortunes of a reformed worldview. In sum, the scriptures display, despite its diversity, a glorious unity of content, whether it is the individual biblical books, doctrines, concepts, motifs, themes, covenants, promises, failures, fulfillments, genres, authors, or ultimately the transcendent, lofty God of holiness who is mighty and merciful to save man from his miserable plight. We are not given the right to conclude the Bible is a disparate collection of writings. We are indispensably helped along the way to apprehend Scripture's organic unity by means of both biblical theology and systematic theology. Scripture itself marries Christ-centered, overarching meaning with Christ-word meanings, text with text, and testament with testament, thus showing that God Himself has joined unity with diversity. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no interpreter tear asunder. In conclusion, 
let me offer some reading strategies for understanding sacred scripture. These strategies flow from the principles we've discussed. To comprehend the meaning of a scripture text, you have to apply your thinking to the thinking process of the scripture's authors, especially its ultimate divine author. The reader of scripture can only grasp its meaning as he appreciates more and more the style, content, and conventions of communication embedded in the text. That is how a reader gets at the thinking process of the biblical authors and its ultimate divine author. Whatever is explicitly or implicitly drawn from the text is what the authors and the author intended to communicate. The reader must be ready to engage with a text on its own terms, the terms dictated by its authors and its author. First, examine the appropriately chosen text by a close, attentive, mindful, and repeated reading of the passage. An appropriate text basically means a cohesive unit of thought between a sentence and a paragraph in length. The length of the text will usually depend on the genre it is part of. For example, in a narrative portion of the Bible, a prolonged prose passage of many paragraphs can be divided into many parts that communicate various streams of thought, episodes of life involving people and events that contribute to its overall flow. Prose lends itself to the qualities of narrative. Whether it is a personal narrative, for example, the story of Abraham, familial narrative, the story of Jacob and his sons, or a national narrative, the story of Israel during its United Kingdom period, they all share certain qualities that prominently convey truth through the stories of people, places, events, conflicts, failures, and triumphs. However, in distinction from prose, the Bible also employs the vehicle of poetry to convey its thoughts and truth. The Psalms, for example, are lyrical expressions of praise, celebration, lament, complaint, and even the depths of despair. These passages contain more abbreviated and concentrated units of thought, yet for all their brevity and pithiness, they lack nothing in profundity, significance, imminence, transcendence, and applicability to the reader. So then, a close and attentive reading of an appropriately chosen biblical text involves a dissatisfaction with a merely cursory reading. It involves a deep dissatisfaction with a superficial comprehension of the biblical text. Close and attentive reading means being as mindful of the emergence of meaning from the scriptural revelation as an expectant mother is of giving birth to her baby. A mother spends nine months monitoring closely the progress of her pregnancy. She eats properly. She adapts to the nausea in the early months by eating strategically to keep food down. She has regular and frequent doctor visits for ultrasounds and blood tests. On the day of delivery, there are a myriad of measures in place to have a safe and successful delivery for both mother and child. Similarly, a responsible interpreter is a serious reader who closely monitors their comprehension of the text according to the text itself. What is a close reading of the Bible mindful of? It is mindful of not imposing meaning onto the text. It is mindful of the text's content, structure, function, 
context, integration with other scripture texts, especially with Christological significance, and only gleaning ideas and conclusions from the text itself. A close and attentive reading of the Bible is a strategy that seeks to yield evidence-based deductions from an analysis of the content and particulars of the text itself. The success of this strategy is improved by repeated readings and enhanced by thinking about the details of the text along the continuum of revelation of the person, work, and offices of the Lord Jesus. After all, in addition to not imposing meaning onto the text, the mindful reader should not unduly close off a particular text to its integration with the rest of the Christological significance of Scripture. No text of Scripture is an island unto itself. Second, examine the flow of thought displayed in the chosen passage itself, as well as how it fits functionally with its surrounding literary context. For example, if your chosen text is a sentence or two, how does it fit within the paragraph? If your chosen text is a paragraph, how does it fit within its larger surrounding context? No matter the length of the text under consideration, the reader's examination will have to include a text's use of language, the function of its grammar, special terms, patterns of organization, figures of speech, and other similar issues. Again, these are usually dependent on the genre the text is a part of in Scripture. Beyond these immediate literary contextual considerations, the reader must always be willing to take notice of broader thematic considerations throughout the canon of Scripture. Remember, no passage of Scripture is an island unto itself. Among the greatest theological themes in the Bible is how God commenced, continued, and culminated His redemptive work in Christ. From its announcement to its fulfillment in the Old and New Testaments respectively, the careful reader and interpreter will integrate the meanings of the biblical books in each testament with the overarching meaning of the Christ-wrought salvation along redemptive historical lines as the chain of islands in an archipelago. In sum, the true Calvinist interpreter of Scripture follows the wise counsel of William Hendrickson by becoming, quote, thoroughly acquainted Unquote, with the Bible by quote, reading the Bible itself. Read not a small portion, he says, but a book at a time, say Genesis in its entirety. What next? Read it again, at least three times. Get into the spirit of the book. See the Christ revealed in it. End of quote. So, brothers and sisters, what is the end of the matter? The end of the matter is this. Take up and read. Thank you for joining us at Urban Puritano. We look forward to catching up with you on your next stop along your journey to the city prepared by God for all true believers. 